Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Sonika Garcia. And I'm Brad Davidson, and this is Breaking the Code. A podcast series addressing misconceptions related to the discipline of behavioral science. We hope to arm you, our listeners, with the tools you need to make sense of behavioral science and to help you apply it to your work as communication extraordinaires. Thanks so much for being here and for listening to this discussion around death specifically speaking around death. So I love this topic specifically for two reasons. One, just the importance and the importance for us in marketing. But two, we love feedback. And this was a recommendation from a listener. Shout out to Jilly Graham over at Havas Links. She had reached out basically just talking about, you know, how how do we talk about death and dying? Do we even talk about it? And there's so many organizations out there that are getting a lot of attention around like helping people who are terminally ill, like plan their own funeral and things like that which to many are, that's like super uncomfortable. Like when I first heard about this organization called uh, Legacy of Lives, I was like, wow, like there's an organization that's aimed around helping people have a say in what happens after they die. Sure, of course. You know, and, but it it makes sense. And like, why not? So again, just want to jump into this conversation around speaking about death. And ultimately, no matter how hard we try to fight it, all of us, Brad, you, me, no matter what age you are, uh, you were programmed at a pretty early age to believe that death and dying is dreadful and terrorizing. So, you know, we don't want to talk about it. It causes us stress. It makes us uncomfortable. And ultimately, death is a is a taboo topic. So let's jump in. Like, Brad, why is death and dying so challenging for us to talk about? Good question. (laughs) I'm not a philosopher, so I can't tell you why death is scary, but I do know that it's one of the universal taboos, right? There's Mm -hmm. the three biggies that are universal, right? The three Ps. Pooping, procreating, and pushing up daisies, as we say, right? So the... the, Did you make that up? uh, I did a long time ago, but yeah, it's not one I use all the time. But yeah, like it's basically... Uh, Anything to do with sex, anything to do with excretion, whether it's, you know, menstrual fluid or poop or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And then death. I think it's a very difficult thing to talk directly about. Taboo doesn't mean you can't refer to it. It means you can't talk about it directly. So we go to the restroom or we go to the, you know what I mean? We go to the uh, bathroom, even though we're not actually taking a bath. Mm -hmm. It's always very uh, difficult for people learning foreign languages to learn the proper euphemisms for toilet because Mm -hmm. you almost never go like, I need to go to the poop place. Like that's what toddlers say, but that's it. You know, like we learn that you have to mask these things. And so Jilly Graham, as you said, reached out and said, well, you had a podcast on difficult conversations. It was um, it, it was about inclusive design. You know, one of the more difficult ones that we grapple with is how do you talk about death in the background? And the answer is it's extraordinarily difficult. In fact, it's one of the things that is seen as one of the major barriers in this country to all sorts of healthcare reform, frankly. The numbers keep changing that people quote, but vast sums of money are spent in the very last bits of life. And no one really thinks that's a good use of money. And yet we do it every time. And so, as we were saying, and just for some background, I did a postdoc in communication and end of life care where I spent a year following doctors, learning how to have that conversation with patients. I was at the hospice a lot. I spent a lot of time with just trainee doctors in general. It's a 
extraordinarily difficult thing to do. And the reason they funded my postdoc was because they felt that no one wants to die in the ICU. This was Robert Wood Johnson, a mm-hmm. project called Death in America. No one wants to die in the ICU. It's very expensive, so hospitals hate it. It's very dehumanizing. You've got tubes sticking out of everything and machines and you know all the rest of it. And so it's not very calm. It's not a very peaceful transition necessarily. Families hate it. Patients almost universally say that's not how they want to go. And yet most Americans end up dying in the ICU if they get to the hospital. And that's problematic. And the belief was, well, if we just had a better conversation, then that would stop happening, hence the project. And what it turned out after a year is I had to change the name of my postdoc from speaking about death to speaking around death, because what happened universally, without exception, was that the clinicians, rather than say, Bob, what would you like to happen if you're going to die, is they would stop talking about what's going to happen down the road. What's going to, you know, what were the test results? What was this? It was a strategic use of silence. So you come in and you go like, well, what's next? And you go like, well, and you wait. And then the doctor would say afterwards, I'd interview the doctor, you know, as they are, I observed and they were like, well, we we didn't talk about what we needed to talk about, but that's because they weren't ready. They knew that test results were coming in today and they didn't ask for them, which means they weren't ready to hear them, which means I'll wait for them to be in a better headspace to give them the bad news. And the patient would be like, oh, the test results just didn't come in. I'm sort of exaggerating a little bit, but not much. And what would happen is these conversations never happen. The doctor would say, I'm not having it. Uh, the, The nurse is better positioned to have it. She knows the patient's mindset. And the nurse would go, I'm not having it. I'm not paid for that. The doctor is the one who knows if they're going to die, but that's really for the social worker. And then the social worker would say, you've got to be kidding. I am not making that kind of diagnosis. It's up to the doctor. And so it was this circular sort of like, well, who's responsible? And there's reasons why they didn't want to have this conversation. I I don't want to just sort of like blurt out my postdoc in one long paragraph. So I'll stop there. But there are very good reasons why doctors don't bring it up. Got it. So I have a question. You said that you were training doctors to have like a better conversation around it or to be able to what I know that was some while back, but what was the main like discrepancy in how doctors were trained to speak about it and then how you thought it should be improved? Good, good question. So I, I misspoke if I said that I was watching them training, right? So oh, I, getting was, I was, Got it. I was seeing how they were taught, you know, these were residents and interns. This is one of the most difficult things doctors can do is be in the room and tell somebody, look, your time is running out. Even I have, I mean, mm-hmm. we're just podcasting and I can't say yeah. it, right? time, right. time's running out. Right. And I think it's got to do a lot with framing and it's got a lot mm-hmm. to do with a challenge of sort of medical thinking is that things are one way or another. There's not a lot of room for subtlety in a diagnosis of cancer, for example, but there's a lot of room for subtlety in predicting the course of the disease. So what happens is the following. I try and convince someone that it's time for them to start thinking about, do they want to do not resuscitate order? Should they not get a long-term lease on a sports car? Let's put it that way, right? And so I say, so Mary, what would you want to have happen if XYZ happened? You know, if you went into arrest or something like that. The first thing the patient says is, are you telling me I'm dying? 
right? They just cut straight to the chase. And I've seen that. Like, you try and dance around it and this and that. It's like, no, but, and then language fails them. One of the findings, actually from my advisor on the postdoc, she was the one who taught me, right, when I was first going into the hospital and the clinic and the hospice was, you can't really ask who's dying because no one's dying. Big air quotes here, right? There was an anthropologist who was doing the study of dying on a very sick floor in a hospital. And she spent weeks and she couldn't find a single patient interview because none of the doctors would tell her any of them were dying until she flipped the question around and said, who would you not be surprised if they passed away in the next two weeks? And then everyone on the ward was dying. And so it comes down to, well, it comes down to, you don't want to say, I think this guy's dying because two things. Number one, if you're wrong, that's pretty bad. And number two, uh, there's this belief in magical thinking that if you tell a patient they're dying, they'll give up hope and they'll die. So, so this, this sort of conversational catch 22, I can't tell you directly what's about to happen in my opinion, because a, you could be the one who breaks the mold and B, I don't want to remove hope from you. That's, that's considered torture. So I can't actively hurt you. So instead I passively hurt you by quietly watching as you silently glide into the ICU where nobody wanted you to go. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a tricky one. Does that, yeah. it's a, it's where taboo really rears its head. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Another thing. So going back to like the actual communication and the things that are said, you know, most times it's not said directly, but instead a patient who's, you know, not stupid, they know what's kind of going on around them and what is being said without actually being said. Right. But I just think back to like, and I guess this is specifically in America, like we have so many different cultural backgrounds and, you know, the doc, like we talked about in the last episode, doctor-patient dialogue is always, you know, cross-cultural. And because death as, you know, just the topic of death is regarded so differently in different areas of the world, I just wonder, and not, you know, it's already a complicated thing to talk about and not to make it more complicated, but I do think there's an important, like, cultural nuance to be considered because, Honestly, a patient of a certain cultural background might feel insulted or bothered or whatever it may be by not being direct with them. Whereas a patient from another culture that might be like the American culture, that might be just what it is and they get it, you know, just thinking like even, you know, the East and the West, right? I'm Indian and I know death is regarded so differently in India than it is here. And part of it is like the whole reincarnation and things like that. But it's more of a celebration of life. And of course, it's not to say that people in India love to hear that they're dying, nothing like that. But there's a way to communicate that where it would be received differently by someone with an Indian background, maybe than someone with an American background. I've never practiced medicine, full stop, right? But I've never <laughs> been around closely in the room in India or in Japan. But I have read, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, you know, a postdoc is also like a lot of reading. And so yeah. I read a lot about, you know, the changing nature of death and dying throughout the mm-hmm. globe. And, and you know, to your point, I mean, one thing to think about is 200 years ago, I'll, I'll, I'll pick a date, right? But let's say 200 to 250 years ago, Everybody was familiar with death. Everybody. Mm -hmm. People didn't die in hot. We didn't have ICUs. We didn't have any of that stuff. And so people knew what a dead body looked like and people knew how to handle one. And if you lived in the uh, in the countryside, which most everyone did, you took care of your own. You know, Mm -hmm. like if someone died in bed or someone died in a horrible, you know, threshing accident or something like that. 
there wasn't anyone you called. And so there, there's been a lot of ethnographies of things like death in rural Spain and how it's changed with people leaving some of these very small towns or they already left because the, the ethnography I'm referring to is at least 50 years old now. But people would go home. There's this used to be this connection to the town that your family came from, the tiny 500 person village that people came from in Spain. And you'd move to Barcelona or Valencia or Madrid or, you know, wherever. And 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 when someone would die, you would go back. But right. you wouldn't actually know how to handle the arrangements. You'd be like, so who do we call? And it's like, you're looking at him. So I think, one, death is very scary because we've managed as a culture, to your point, we've pushed it so far to the side. We don't see people who are dying. We don't keep them in public. We mm -hmm. put them in very private spaces. Number two, there's a lot written about it's a lot easier to have a conversation with somebody who's been thinking about a good death for their whole life or for at least a while than to try and overcome a lifetime habit of avoiding the idea that you're getting older and going to die anyway, right? So this sort of pursuit of eternal youth is fun until it's over and then you haven't done any of the emotional work of figuring out what the end's going to look like that now I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing a number of ethnographies but you can see it sort of gets to exactly what you were saying like if you're in a culture that handles death by just avoiding it and by going everybody's eternally young and we're going to botox ourselves and all the rest mm -hmm. of it i'm still going to party like it's you know yep. 1967 then when the end does come, you're woefully emotionally unprepared to deal with it. That's not to say I'm well prepared to deal with it. But what you said is well borne out in the literature. I, I haven't experienced it, but it basically gets to it's not fair to ask doctors or nurses or anyone in the hospital to make up for a lifetime of ignoring the reality that you're going to die someday. Right. And that is one of the things that foreign-born doctors bring up again and again and again is like mm -hmm. Americans are woefully unprepared to deal with their own mortality. Yeah, that's really true. Um, and because I saw a, a story somewhere and it basically was just talking about like how in some cultures, like you mentioned, if you've been thinking about death or it's been something that's been discussed, you know, for a part of your life, whether or not you're sick, it makes that conversation easier. And in certain cultures, life and death are equal, like they're equal parts of someone's existence, whereas in America, it's it's life only. And then death is like at the end. Right. It's yeah. not like talked about. Or, yeah, I mean, this know. is where religion comes in, right? Like my uncle uh, passed away four, maybe five years ago now, pretty bad cancer, uh, pretty young guy, mm -hmm. very religious man, very, very Christian. And I remember one of the last things he said to me is I'm not actually worried about death. I feel very comfortable. I know where I'm going, right? He believed in heaven and he believed he was going there. What he was worried about was would death hurt the actual dying itself, which was really interesting. And I was like, I can't possibly tell you if it hurts or not. Like we only can guess. And that's what's terrifying is it's a mystery and we all pick different parts of it to be scared of. But but the the other barrier here. So so I don't want to accept right. Like not all Americans have spent their lives not thinking about death. But as an as a culture, we tend to focus on youth, achievement, maintenance of, of strength and power. Yeah. You know, now, you know, we're cultural anthropologists to some degree. There was just a big article in New York Times that Gen X, us, you know, like going gray is the new power move. And some people were saying like, oh, it shows that we're growing up and we're getting used to dying. I'm like, I don't know, man, it might just be a fashion statement. I have no idea. But 
it's definitely something to think about. And, and you know, again, because we're trying to be practical, it, it, it is interesting. And there's one more point I want to make, but I want to get to what does this mean for us? When we work in things like stage four breast cancer, the choices people are faced with are your drug or hospice. And that's something we almost never talk about, that the backdrop to these things, you know, three months, you know, extension of life, that still ends at the same spot. And at some point, we have to admit that our our curative options lead inevitably, eventually, to the most non-curative condition there is, which is death. And we participate in that avoidance. We participate in the whole, like, just keep running your race till you fall down dead. We don't talk about end of life decision making in our discussion guides, for example. We never, I've never once, and I've brought it up in every one because of the postdoc, any time that I've worked in a condition where, you know, the next step is death, you know, stage four stuff, uh, really bad end stage, you know, kidney disease, liver disease, whatever it is. Any discussion guide we've ever made, uh, any question I put in about how do you want to handle like the very end has been cut out. It's too depressing. It's too sad. It It's also part of our obligation to, to be human and to help people understand the, the nature of their mortality as best we can. Now, it's a, it's a small role we play, but if we are the ones who are putting discussion guides in the hands of doctors and nurses and anyone else, and we're not telling them you need to bring this up. Who is telling them mm-hmm. you need to bring this up? There's one more thing I wanted to say, which is the reason doctors don't tell patients that I think you're going to die. There's a lot of them. But the most unexpected one for me and the one that's really stuck was when you're right, the patient can't thank you. And when you're wrong, the patient will curse you for the rest of their life. So I know wow. someone she just passed um, many, many, many decades ago. She was in a clinical trial and a um, National Institutes for Health, NIH in, in uh, mm-hmm. Washington with a very bad cancer. And she was apparently the only person in her clinical trial who survived. Mm. And to this, to the day she died, she used to say the following. It was my mother-in-law. She used to say, that doctor told me I had six months to live and I showed him. Wow. Now in my mind, I know in my mind, what I thought probably happened is someone said, listen, this is a bad diagnosis. You have two small children. You have a lot going on. You you might want to get your affairs in order. Something, something that I would mm-hmm. consider quite reasonable. She heard it as you're going to die. You've got six months. And she took it as a challenge and a threat. Now, instead of being happy that she was the only person who, she was very happy that she was the only person who survived the trial, but Instead of being happy with the team, she was mad at that doctor for having stressed her out over that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's referred anger. I think she she was a very smart woman and she's capable of running the numbers and going, I had a 99% chance of not making it or whatever it was. But she was genuinely angry. She was told she was going to die. And I think that's something that doctors learn very, I don't know if they could put it in the words that I just did, but if you're right, no one thanks you. Not really, not long term. And if you're wrong, they hold it against you forever. So there's a lot of like downsides to being direct about someone's chances. And again, all I'm saying is I think we have to be much more sophisticated about how we approach the possibility that somebody's going to die in close proximity to the same sort of decision making that we're, we're fostering for them in these tough diseases. Right. 
Right. And maybe this isn't another episode, but now I'm very curious. And I always like from a research standpoint to hear from the person on the receiving end of messages, like with your mother-in-law and like other people that were in her situation, how do they want to be communicated to? Right. Like in that sense, is there a right way? Like, shouldn't we be hearing from the people who are actually sick to know what's the right way to communicate? Yes. And I think people at the end of life also get a pass on being polite. Polite, yeah, of course. So, so for example, uh, I I mean, again, you've said like, I I tell stories, but here's one from my postdoc. There was a, there was a guy, he was a vet. He was at the VA. He had lung cancer. He was kind of a, a socially marginal guy. It's not a, not necessarily a drug addict or anything. There's a lot of like if you hang around the VA, there's a lot of socially marginal people who use it as a sort of social service. This guy actually owned a silver mine up uh, in the Nevada hills, and he liked hanging out there. He was a combat vet. He had some issues. And and uh, I don't know why I'm laughing. He was a funny guy. Uh, he didn't like talking to me much, but he was will- he tolerated me. And he had a wedge resection for his lung cancer. And when he got out, I remember being by his bedside when the doctor was like, so we'll start chemo, whatever. And the guy was like, what are you talking about? I thought this was done. And the doctor, oh, oh no, there's like more to do. He had completely misunderstood the nature of the operation and what would happen. Now, I didn't think much of it except for to go like, wow, that's amazing. I wonder who's really at fault. Was he not listening, whatever. But he was gone. Like by that afternoon, he had packed up and left. He hadn't told anybody. And his brother was there and I introduced myself and he said, I'm barely certain I know where he went. He went back to his silver mine and we'll find him dead there in about a month. And he's chosen to go. He doesn't want to die here and he doesn't want to do any more stuff. He just wants to go. And he didn't feel the need to tell anybody. He didn't feel it. He just, he was like, screw it. I'm done with the medical system. I'm going to go out on my terms. That was the only guy I saw who felt empowered to unplug himself from the system and he was nuts so you know like in a in a positive charming way in some ways but like not a guy you would like work next to at at an advertising agency you know it takes a lot of courage and it takes a really outsider perspective to go i'm just going to unplug and walk out of here right i love story time (laughs) well Um, he was a funny guy yeah, I know. It takes a lot to, as much as you don't want to hear hear those words, it takes a lot to not like just give in and think like, well, let me just continue because maybe I'll beat the odds in, in comparison to what he did, which was, I'm just not going to be a part of this. And I don't know. I mean, sometimes I hear stories that that and like kind of just saying like, I'm not going to be a part of this. I'm not going to continue treatment. I'm just going to go and like live my life. And you end up living longer than maybe like a diagnosis. So much of it is mental. This stuff intrigues me because I feel like how much of the conversation then impacts, like, does the conversation impact reality or is it reality that's impacting how the conversation goes? Like, I, I don't know. I just, right? the, the, the emotional impact, the physical impact of the emotions that come from like grief of dying is something that's actually been studied a lot. And I would love to like dive more into that because like what, yeah, what's it's, been a, 
kill you first sure. kind of thing, you know? Look, I'll, th I'll, I'll throw the last idea out there, right? It's possible that my mother-in-law lived as long as she did because she was trying to spite the doctor who told her right. that she was going to pass, exactly. you know? Like, she used that as a motivator, in which case, if I was that doctor, I'd be like, well, it's not ideal, but I did my yeah. job. Right, right. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Brad. Um, I think this is a really interesting conversation. I feel like there's so much more to unpack, but I would love, I, I mean, I'm sure our listeners too, I just want to hear more stories about your postdoc because I'm I'm also just curious back to our last episode about that doctor-patient dialogue and specifically around death. Like it, you know, do some, do some doctors handle it differently? Do, like, you know, do you find that foreign trained doctors have those conversations differently? Like I just have a lot more questions, but maybe we'll save that for another episode. So yeah. Um, ask me about, you. ask me about the Irish respiratory therapist and the, um, again, I was at a VA hospice for about half of it. So a lot of these guys were vets of varying sorts, but ask me about the, the long range patrolman from Vietnam, like uh, one of those, like, guys who would go out in the jungle for like eight weeks at a time, like oh. super nice guy, competitive tennis player afterwards, stuff like that. But, and the, the Irish respiratory fellow and just how much of a gulf between their cultures there was. Wow. I'm, I'm so around. interested. But it's a good okay. one. Yeah. We have so, to, we have to get into that. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time. Thanks until everyone next for listening. Time. Thank you. And thank you again to Jilly for, for asking yeah. the question. You know, these are, these are difficult, you know, these are these are tough conversations. I don't have any answers as to why why we don't want to die. I don't want to die, but talking about yeah. it's tough. Yeah, 100%. And like Jilly did, if you all have any any topics that you want us to cover or dig deeper into, please email us at medicalanthropology at havas.com. So until next time, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Breaking the Code is a podcast by Havas Health and Use Medical Anthropology Department. Created and produced by Brad Davidson and Sonika Garcia. Content editing done by Catherine Rossi. Post-production audio editing done by Gabriel Allen Cummings. And inspiration by all of you. Thanks for listening and your continued support. If you enjoy these episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please leave a rating and subscribe. Until next time.